listening to the First Draft Podcast, a podcast that provides honest and constructive feedback to new writers. I'm Julie Farkas. And I'm Crystal Lay. We are ready to get started here. So I was asked to bring an inspirational piece for us. And given that this is our first podcast, I thought a really good one came from a local writer. Her name's Tiffany Rice from the Carnegie Center. Nice. And she told me in a recent class that you cannot fix a blank page. And I just love that, right? It's so simple and it's so powerful because it gives us the courage to put down anything we want on paper and know that we can always fix it later. And so if you're just starting out in writing and just wanting to do something, then just do it. Start writing and see what happens. And then you can always go back later and fix it and edit and revise and send it into critiques and those kinds of things. But you can't fix it if you don't get started. I have to say for the first episode of the first draft podcast, that is the perfect quote. Isn't it? I thought it was very fitting. Yes. Because I think a blank page is probably the most intimidating item. Terrifying. You can approach. Absolutely. Yeah. I hands down agree. Terrifying. And it took me a long time to understand that just putting something on paper is fine and you can fix it later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think probably that's the hardest thing to understand about creative writing. Mm -hmm. It's not about the first draft. It's about getting to the last draft. Right. And that's not always the second or even the third. So my book is currently on its seventh draft. Yes. um, And it's probably going to go to eight before it gets somewhere. So yeah, it it takes a lot of iterations to get there, but you got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. So are we ready to get started? Yeah. So This is Everyone Deserves a Job. It's a piece of flash fiction by Nicole Prima. So flash fiction, sometimes the criteria varies, but it's generally 500 words or so. So it's a short piece. It's still got to have a plot, beginning, middle, end. It's usually going to be pretty concise. I walked out of the hot sun into a room chilled like a refrigerator. I was in an empty waiting room lined with plastic chairs. The receptionist smiled as if she were expecting me. Welcome to Purgatorio Temp Agency. How can I help you? A friend said you might be able to help me find work. You've come to the right place. I'll just need some information to get the process started. A few clicks with her mouse. What are your greatest failures and regrets? Oh, well, um, I noticed a placard on the counter that read Lucy. Um, Lucy, these questions seem very personal. Ah, yes, all part of our process, but if you prefer, we can start by looking at your resume. It had been a long time since I'd found work, and more than money, I was desperate for affirmation, being chosen for anything. I handed over my resume. As she scanned it, I noticed a framed cross-stitch on the wall behind her with the motto, Idle hands are the devil's playthings. Okay, good, I see some things we can work with. Tell me about these gaps in your employment, here and here. I stalled. Could you tell me a little more about your company and matching process? Definitely. So we used to contract with Divine Interventions to handle all of their outplacements. You know, placing a CEO responsible for polluting the environment in a hands-on waste management job. But then, when DI went through downsizing, we lost that contract and the old redemptive model simply wasn't profitable. Now we are a subsidiary of Poetic Justice, and we've rebranded. We focus on the aesthetics of job fitting, the sheer pleasure of the interesting narrative arc. 
Just yesterday, I matched a woman who felt that she had failed as a teacher with a position evaluating and firing struggling teachers. We put a lot of food insecure people in food service jobs. We offer retraining too, for example, to train people with a lot of credit card debt for accounting positions. She gestured to the motivational poster with an image of a smiling contract worker holding a traffic sign and moving the oncoming traffic forward with the motto, everyone deserves a job. This guy, one of our feature placements, hit and run a deaf kid who was playing in the road. That's diabolical. Yes, exactly. And we practice what we preach. I used to be kind of a big deal, roving the earth, flexible hours, executive style. And here I am stuck behind a desk, 9 to 5, in a deep freeze because Donna in HR thinks it's hot in here. She rolls her eyes. Sorry, let's get back to your intake interview. I was already backing towards the door. I expected protest, but she simply called after me. I think we've got everything we need. We'll contact you when something appropriate opens. She smiled. I shivered. I knew I would take whatever she offered me. I think this is a great piece of flash fiction because it does have a beginning. It does have a middle. It does have an end. So you have a complete story arc in here. Mm-hmm. In addition, there are just some great lines. Uh, Rule number one, purgatory temp agency gives you an idea that maybe this isn't your normal temp agency. I agree with you. I love the witty ways that she tells us what's going on without actually just saying blatantly what's going on. The person she's talking to is named Lucy. Um, Things like that are really, really clever. And you're right. It has a very clear beginning, right? So this person's coming in, they're looking for work. And then as they're talking to Lucy, they're like, you know, this seems kind of strange and that sort of thing. And then even though they're running away at the end, they're still thinking, yeah, I'm going to take whatever she has because I'm that desperate. So I think it has a really good arc to it. The paragraph where Lucy is explaining their business model and matching process and how they all got started, to me, that paragraph kind of got a little heavy, kind of slowed things down just a hair because there was so much more dialogue in the rest of it. So I would have liked to maybe cut that down just a little bit. Maybe not the example, like with the CEO for polluting the environment or something, just to make it a little bit easier to digest instead of this big block. Right. And at the beginning, the woman starts interviewing her right away with what are your greatest failures and regrets, and then asks for her resume two paragraphs down. I would think she would ask for a resume first. Mm -hmm. And this is a strange one. She says that the woman starts handling the computer and it says a few clicks with her mouse as a complete sentence. And I'm not sure that worked for me. I agree. I, I did not love that sentence and I had it just marked out completely because yeah. I don't think it's, it's necessary. It slows it I think it, it, it slows it down, right? It breaks up the dialogue. I also marked, and this is a tiny little thing, but she says these questions seem very personal, but there's only one question, right? right. So that's a tiny little thing and yet it, it can distract the reader a little bit. And again, it's a sequencing issue because the woman hasn't even asked for a resume Mm -hmm. yet Mm -hmm. and that might seem odd if you've got the resume why are you asking me personal questions Mm -hmm. but other than that I think it's a better than a first draft I think it's really great I really enjoyed this piece yeah it would do well in a contest I think I think it it would would be very memorable people would latch on to it and you can visualize it all very well so I think it'd do really well so thank you for sharing Nicole
All right, Nicole, we'd like to hear your comments about our review. Hey. Hey. Um, yeah, thank you so much, guys, for reading this and for um, giving me thorough feedback. I appreciate that. I appreciate the feedback on the sequencing. I think you're right that if I lead in with the resume, that might contribute the way that I want the story to slowly build into a, a sense of strangeness instead of jumping right in with something strange at the front. I think that makes a lot yes. of sense. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I have a question about the job examples. The first example about the CEO and the waste management is to kind of clarify that there is no redemptive quality to the jobs that are being offered. They're just a bad fit. Yeah. So did you think that I could just break that paragraph up with more dialogue maybe? Or I, I think breaking it up a little bit. I like the example. Me I just too. I just don't know that I liked it in that sequence there. Mm-hmm. So maybe moving it down to the paragraph below where she's listing the other people that she's made some connections. Because mm-hmm. I actually like that one better than the teacher one. I thought the, the okay. teacher one's okay, but I like the CEO better. I love the, the food insecure one. I think that <laughs> one is pretty funny. The credit card mm-hmm. one was all right. And then Julie and I actually were debating if the hit and run was a little too dark or not. I mean, yeah. I personally thought it was okay because you didn't go into a lot of detail. And the, the whole thing is kind of satirical, kind of lighthearted anyway. So I think you can get away with that. But I could see how some people might flinch at that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But what I liked the most about it was the agency did everything right, except it was all wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, okay. It's a really nice twist. Like the woman says, we practice what we preach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are so many lines like that in here that in another context would sound cheesy. Mm-hmm. I did have some readers who weren't clear about whether Lucy was supposed to be devil sort of figure. Did you find that that was clear? I thought that was very clear. Me too. Yeah. yeah. I had no problem okay. making that connection at all. Yeah. So. But it doesn't hurt the piece if someone doesn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not, right. yeah. yeah, it's not so important. Mm-hmm. They understood what was going on, even though they didn't know she Lucy was Lucifer, mm-hmm. right? You might mm-hmm. could expand that last paragraph on the first page where mm-hmm. Lucy says, yes, exactly. And we practice what we preach. I used to be kind of a big deal, roving the earth, flexible hours, executive style. And mm-hmm. I feel like there, there might be an opportunity to throw in one more little thing to help readers make that connections better, oh. you know. But then there was that Apple incident or something oh, like yeah. that. And then as you mm-hmm. get later, it's like, oh, her name's Lucy. I know what's going on here. So. I think you might could Mm -hmm. add one more thing and help it out just a hair without adding a whole lot of extra words, because I'm assuming you're pretty well maxed out on your word limit. Yes, yeah, I am bumping up against the word limit. So that was my other question was, with the last line, I say, I know that I'll take whatever she offers. And some readers were like, why? I don't feel like that's motivated enough. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Well, in the paragraph above, and again, we're back to sequencing, if she's got the resume and then... It's been a long time since I found work, and more than money, I was desperate for affirmation. Maybe there's some place that you can re-emphasize that, boy, that doesn't sound good, but I need a job. Mm -hmm. It crossed my mind that 
well, did this person really have sufficient reason to be desperate? And I, the way I looked at it is that your focus was really more on the agency and on Lucy. And mm-hmm. so I was kind of okay with it. I think if you had a little bit more room, that would be the first place I would want to expand things. But I think the desperation was sufficiently clear. The fact that mm-hmm. she didn't immediately run away, things mm-hmm. first started getting strange, I think kind of plays mm-hmm. to that. And she says early on, you know, it's been a long time since I found work. And I do like the line that more than money, I was desperate for affirmation. Um, And I think that really speaks to a higher level of desperation than just I'm hungry and broke. It's Mm -hmm. I just need to belong somewhere and I feel out of place and I feel desperate. And I think that was a really great line. And you might even could find a way to emphasize that a little bit maybe moving it to the beginning of the sentence or moving it further to the end, breaking it off in mm. a separate line, something like that. But to me, that was the moment where I was like, okay, if she's really desperate, that would help without adding a bunch of words to the piece. Okay, cool. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. So I loved it. I yes. thought it was great. Keep working on it and try to get it published. Yeah, I will. Thank you guys so much. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Our next piece was submitted by Pam, and it is the first chapter to a novel. The first chapter should introduce the main character. It also might provide a setting or mood, depending on the novel, and should give the reader a sense of the conflicts to come. All right. Lord Law and Larceny, The Darius Trinity. Preface. Between 1879 and 1909, Darius Landon Vigus Moffat worked as a dry goods store bookkeeper, the principal of two African-American schools, a teacher, an academy headmaster, a Methodist circuit writer, an Episcopal priest in seven states, and an attorney in at least four. He was also a philanderer, a thief, and a bigamist who disappeared in 1909. Chapter 1. The Wrong Side of the River Darius L.V. Moffat is unaware his fellow travelers view him as an ordinary fellow of average height and appearance. He considers himself to occupy a class apart from all others streaming west to Nebraska in 1884. I am not an immigrant, he announces to anyone listening, nor a homesteader, but a prominent Kentucky attorney who can argue in Latin if a worthy opponent emerges. On his envisioned frontier, Darius will encounter no equals. He is 23 years old. If his mother Annie's prediction proves accurate, he has 20 years more to live. You are so like my dear father, you will leave us too soon, just as he did, she often whispered. This mournful refrain marks his earliest and most recent memories of his determined mother. As he started on this journey, she almost tummed those words while pressing into his hands a tear-stained cloth containing sandwiches and cake. Darius feels a strong bond with the grandfather he never met, a link far more material than spiritual. For years, his seamstress grandmother and her two daughters shortened, lengthened, took in, let out, and patched the dead man's clothing to fit his own growing frame. If anything about him needed improvement, it was this wardrobe. All would be discarded soon except for the abundance of handmade ties his mother contrived from leftover fabric scraps. Plaid, striped, shiny, dull, foreign hand, and ascots. He wears them all with pride. For the train trip, he chose a simple, slightly unfashionable, dotted bow tie. He adores the train ride west. 
Truthfully, he enjoys a good excursion in any direction. Beyond Omaha, the jostling Pacific Railroad cars rasp to a stop every few miles, swallowing water and coal, shifting passengers and freight. A horse could cover the distance more efficiently, but the train's pace allows Darius to look over the landscape for a place to settle. In each town, he asks locals whether their place requires a good attorney. Probably not, they repeat. Everywhere, the smell of manure and tobacco combines with the train engine's smoke and oil, reminding Darius of home. The last of his mother's food is gone, the air is freezing cold, and he longs to sleep stretched out underneath a blanket. Still, he does not miss what he's left behind, but feels the absence of its replacement. He's across a third of Nebraska before the Grand Island Station Master allows that an attorney might prosper in Ord Village about 60 miles north. Darius tries to decide whether the man seems reliable. It doesn't occur to look into the fellow's eyes. He stares instead at the man's feet. The lack of shine on his shoes is troubling, but Darius considers there might be a kind of honesty in Scuff's shoes, so he asked when the train leaves for Ord Village. Wherever he lives, there must be a train. People without trains are almost prisoners. It doesn't, the station master says. At least it won't until the tracks are finished. Train will run all the way up there in a couple of months. How do I go there now? He might as well look over the only prospect. Hitching a ride with the train construction crew will get you pretty close. Where they leave you off, somebody will notice you and carry you on in. So the deal is made. The station master hands him off to a section boss named Arthur, who demands one dollar before Darius is allowed to climb aboard a hand-propelled train cart. Hang on to the wooden toolbox, Arthur advisors. If you slide off, we're not stopping. Darius thrills as two men pump the wheeled platform along the tracks faster and smoother than swaying enclosed train cars could manage. No one knows where I am, he thinks. I am like that famous Siberian explorer from Ohio. Dismounting, he walks the few miles into Ord Village, where he surveys the town's short row of hotels and saloons. Thumps and shrieks emanate from a round wooden structure. The place is full of bumpkins, he decides, who would be grateful for his willingness to join them. Checking into the nearest hotel, he spots a local newspaper, oddly named the Ord Weekly Quiz. It seems there are at least one other literate person around. The next day, he calls on the paper's editor to advertise the availability of Darius Landon Vigus Moffat to perform legal services. When the paper comes out, he learns the village already has nine lawyers and three accountants, most of them willing to exchange services for goods. Darius needs money. He lives in a hotel. What could he do with an ear of corn or a piglet? Undeterred, he expands his professional services to include writing letters, notarizing documents, and making entries in family Bibles. He also plays a little poker in the saloons, especially with strangers who didn't stay long enough to question his frequent good fortune. He spends part of the winnings on companionable young servant women, emigres from Russia, Wales, and Bohemia. They often go to the round gray building that turned out to house a skating rink, something new to Darius, as was having three playful women in his hotel room at once.
After a year in Ord Village, Darius owns a tailored suit, three shirts, half a dozen collars, and 80 Grand Island acres bought with poker winnings. He offers assorted services from a small office in the rear of a drugstore opposite the courthouse. The store, built with sawmill damp wood, has shifted out of plumb as its boards dried and cracked. Callers climb rickety stairs to discover the attorney standing behind a wooden and glass counter abandoned by the previous tenant, a milner. If business requires sitting down for a discussion, he escorts the person to a restaurant five doors away. He buys a nervous client one bottle of Aracespirilla as a tonic, but anyone wishing to enjoy more pays his own way. His few regular customers consist of a marginal lot. Given a chance, he will defend even a horse thief, but that crime is remedied outside the court system. Almost everyone belongs to the Anti-Horse Thief Association, with its determined, efficient volunteers executing justice for all stolen items, no matter how small. Its members operate during broad daylight, which, they claim, sets them apart from the undesirable vigilantes hanging people at night. This is a cool piece. I love it. The title, first of all, is so catchy. Lord Law and Larceny. Just very catchy. Darius is full of himself, right? Yeah. Um, and that he could argue in Latin if a worthy op- opponent <laughs> emerges, right? Yeah. If not a yes. big dramatic scene that starts off, but the character is so innately interesting that I think it really drives it. What makes it so is voice. And mm-hmm. I think the author has obtained a great voice in this piece. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably one of the most difficult things to do in creative writing. And when you pick this up at any chapter, you know it's about Darius Mm -hmm. because of the way the writer has captured Mm -hmm. a voice. That's why I love this piece so much. Mm -hmm. In addition to all the great lines, she loved his grandfather in a material sense Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. the family kept cutting down his clothes to fit him. That is such a sly wit. Mm -hmm. And there's so many lines like that through here. I like the one especially when strangers who didn't stay long enough to question his frequent good fortune. So I think she also has a really good use of smell in this one paragraph talking about everywhere the smell of manure and tobacco combines with the train's engine smoke and oil and reminds Darius of home. I think that's a good use of smell and that's a sense that we underutilize in creative writing because it's a harder one to explain. And what's so odd about that is the author uses smell but not color. Oh, you know, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, well, so like here, yeah. not too long after that, um, she looks at his shoes. She noticed they're scuffed, everything but the color. Right. Out of everything, I would recommend a dash of color. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think of this piece, I see black and white. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. see any color. I agree. Mm-hmm. But So as far as the story arc goes, he sets up a little business does pretty well. So it says that he owns a suit. And I love that that's how he measures his success. He doesn't say, I'm happy and I have lots of friends and I, my life is content. He says, I've got tailored suits and three shirts and, and some collars and that yes. kind of thing. So he's very materialistic. And then I think the whole town has an interesting vibe to it right where it stops. The members operate in broad daylight that that sets them apart from vigilantes. And it does capture a Wild West town yeah but in a way that is 
downplayed. Mm-hmm. Like she, she mentions that he has three playful women in his room at once, mm-hmm. and just leaves it there. Right, right. Uh, and I love that. Uh-huh, it's uh-huh. not a big deal is made out of it. But there's this moment where you stop and go, "What? He's a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> he considers himself this uh-huh. outstanding man, and yet somehow he manages to lure three women uh-huh. into his room." I like when he's talking about the other attorneys that are willing to exchange services for goods. And he's like, what would I do with an ear of corn or a piglet? I live in a hotel. What am I going to do with that? That is so beneath him. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think this is a really cool piece. It has an interesting start. I'm anxious to see where it goes in the future. Yes. Okay, Pam, what did you think of our review? Well, I had to laugh when you made... One spot-on observation. I mean, here's this colorful character. He was a real guy who did a lot of things in his life, and I'm writing his story in black and white. Oh, so that hit true to you. It did, and thanks for pointing that out. I'm certainly going to look at it again with that in mind. Well, and the other thing I thought I would add to that is period piece. I don't know about clothing during that time, but I have a feeling that a farmer would dress differently than an upper-class gentleman. Would he wear spats? Probably not, but there must be clothing that would have been specific to the period for a man. Again, you might sprinkle that through. Your prose is so spare that too much description, I think, would not be appropriate. So actually, that's also a very good point, and I'm a little relieved to hear you say that I shouldn't add a whole lot to my spare prose, because that's something I worry about, is I do write kind of lean, if you will. Yeah. And I don't know that that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I think it's really great, Pam. Do you have any other questions to us about? No, I don't. All right. Is that it? I guess so. Thank you very much, Pam. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can't fix a blank page, so start writing. First Draft Podcast would like to thank WLXL 95.7 LPFM, Lexington, Kentucky, for their help in producing our podcast, and Keller Glass for the music used in this episode. The link to more music by Keller Glass is kellerglass.com. This podcast is produced by Julie Farkas. 